Of course they tell you you can't duel. Like, you don't agree to it unless you're like, oh, is it legal to kill people? Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead, get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. We have a lot of people to thank this week. That's nice. It is, yeah. That um, call to action, or as folks in the biz say, CTA, last week where we opened the show asking people to rate and review us worked. It's a good strategy. Thanks, people. Appreciate yeah. that. Ask and you shall receive. Just like put it out there like like the secret. Yes. Or just like any request to any person to do anything. Beg. I am. It's just begging. I'm yes. comfortable with that also. But thank you to all the people who, who responded to our begging. We have made the charts. We are now, uh, this is official as of this week, uh, the, in the top 30 comedy podcasts in France. That's, we are. That's huge. It's actually pretty horrifying considering the number of times I've tried to say things in French, uh, knowing that the last time I was any good at French, I was 14. <laughs> yes. Okay. So apologies and thank you. Well, no, but that's good because apparently the French find your pronunciation very funny. Right. Which is great. It's like how Twitter signed off one of their tweets this week, like, we're sorry or you're welcome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's... It's really a we're sorry or you're welcome scenario here. Yes, but appreciate all of the uh, listeners all over, both states and international. I think we, we charted in like Sao Paulo, Brazil or something. Oh, no, we we actually charted in a lot of places this week. Vietnam. Wow. Yeah. Iceland. Look at this. Slovakia. Yeah, I've always wanted to go to Slovakia. I couldn't find it on a map, and I'm very sorry, Slovakia. <laughs> Thanks for the support. God damn it. You just, under, you just ruined that whole thing, momentum we had going for us. Listen, I'm just trying to be honest. I don't, I don't want to get their expectations high. Fair enough. They need to know that I'm trash. Well, okay. So in addition to all of you who rated and reviewed, and we were very grateful, um, special thanks to the person who suggested this week's hero, Yes. This week's hero was chosen by a listener named Phil. He contacted us via the website, and that's how we ended up with this week's hero. Gave us a a list of a lot of good people, but this one really popped out at me this week. Great. Phil. Short for Philbert, I assume? (laughs) Maybe. Philothy? You know what? That that might not even be this person's real name. Okay, yeah, fair enough. This person's email was signed Phil. Well, thanks. Could be anything. Phil, you person of mystery, you? Mm Mm-hmm. So anyway, thanks to Phil, this week's hero is Mark Twain. What do you know about Mark Twain? I know several things about Mark Twain. He is funny, has a mustache, kind of looks like a sloppier Colonel Sanders. (laughs) Um, Doesn't stop there. (laughs) Doesn't stop there. Uh, his real name is Samuel Clemens. Mm-hmm. I do know that. And he, he was a author and comedian. They named a big comedy award after him. He's generally like a, a well-known kind of like Southern American, you know, comedy legend. Okay. Humorist. Humorist. Yes. Yeah. He is a humorist, a, an author, and he is so much more. I will say this. The comparisons to Colonel Sanders don't stop there. 
Oh, man. That guy was a huge fuck up, so I cannot wait. Let's dig in. Like you said, real name, Samuel Clemens. So throughout this episode, I'm mostly going to refer to him as Clemens. Uh, It's just easier than going back and forth, but it's the same person. Little Sammy Clems. Sure. Born on November 30th. And I feel like he would hate this bit, but I'm going (laughs) to do it anyway. So it is time for Audrey's Astrology Corner. People born on November 30th are Sagittarius's. They seek adventure with a positive and straightforward personality. They take no refuge in familiar settings as they are much more excited by the prospect of new experiences and people. This inclination may explain why they are always exploring new environments. Possessed with a sharp wit and a personality of a star, a November 30th Sagittarius tends to live flamboyantly. There are also moralists who believe the moral code applies to everyone, except them. They are apt to be egotistical, but have a rare ability to laugh at themselves. Wait a second. So this description describes somebody who is witty and egotistical Mm -hmm. and believe the rules didn't apply to them. Mm -hmm. But you didn't say a birth year. And now I I couldn't even calculate the Venus rising of this (laughs) uh, horoscope, much less whether it was designed for this person's November 30th or somebody else's. Sure. Well, if you're looking for his birth chart, he was born in 1835. November 30th, in Florida, Missouri. I do not know his time of birth, so... Florida or Missouri? In Florida, Missouri. Florida, comma, Missouri. That is the city. Okay, okay. Which, as someone who has lived in Missouri before, what I can tell you is a Florida-Missouri mashup is horrifying. Worst of both worlds. (laughs) I mean, really, that is not a state you want to stop in. Yeah. Florida, Missouri, no thank you. If there was a Florida, if there's a band called Florida, Missouri Line, it would (laughs) be nothing. It it would be nothing but just the most backwards uh, racist songs you can imagine. (laughs) Well, just wait until the Gulf of Mexico, like, swallows up all of Louisiana, Mississippi. (laughs) Everything in between. Everything in between, because you're going to have it. You're going to have a Florida, Missouri Line someday. Yikes. Not great. One other really interesting thing about Samuel Clemens' birth is that it is sort of linked to the lore of a specific comet. And I'm going to pronounce it Halley's Comet. I, this is the comet that came back when we were kids, right? Halley's Comet? It did. So you're saying Halley's Comet. Yes. I'm going to say Halley's Comet just so we get a sampling of both. Because when I looked it up on the internet, it said both are a acceptable so that's, no that's bullshit no it's Haley's comet here's how i know both are not acceptable okay. comets are named after people if mm-hmm. you if you're mr Haley, then you get it's your comet that's how it's like <laughs> finders keepers for comets that's how it works <laughs> and so however even if it like however the, this person who found it said their name is the right pronunciation it's it can't spelled be like valley though so Haley, two l's that makes me think it's Haley even more because if it was Halley's and it just looked like Halley's and sounded like Halley's, it'd be no problem. But the fact that there's confusion means it has to be different than it looks. Except the thing is that people have misspelled it multiple times. You did not let me finish reading the Wikipedia entry that said that it has been spelled a variety of different ways over a number of different years. But if any of our listeners are direct descendants of Halley slash Haley and or astronomers, they can... Correct one of us. It's 50% chance we got it right. I'm pretty sure the job is called the Strographer. <laughs> but, you know. They can fight you on that. Yeah, let's, let's see. Let's see what they got to say. Anyway, so he is born 
on the same day that this comet is uh, in the skyline, in Earth's skyline. It only happens once every 75 years. How did this not come up in his horoscope? I feel like this is the kind of stuff <laughs> horoscopes just like sink their teeth into. Come on. Well, it doesn't happen for everyone born on November 30th. If he was born a year later, then it wouldn't have been in his in his birth date personality. I'm just saying, if the horoscope for November 30th of whatever year he was born said, like, you're born under the sign of this comet, so you're going to be a famous comedian, I would be like, okay, this is real. I we give up this. have been over this. The year does not matter. Anybody born on November 30th has this personality. Yeah, I don't know about that. Okay. I find well, it less credible. If your birthday's on November 30th, come fight Elliot also. <laughs> Making a lot of line. enemies this week. <laughs> There's a cue. We're all mad. Uh, I go first. Fair enough. He's born. It's entering Earth's skyline. It's closest in its orbit to Earth as it's going to be for the next 75 years. Is that, are we good with that? Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Like I said, born in Florida, Missouri as the sixth of seven children. He was born two months early and not expected to live. 1830s, two months early is not a good look for most infants. Yeah, seems rough. He makes it, but he's a very sickly child. For like the first decade of his life, quite ill. Despite the fact that she had five other kids, eventually six, his mother doted on him a lot. One account of his youth talks about how, you know, like, yes, he was sickly, but the degree of sickliness sort of varied over that decade. Like sometimes he was really sick and sometimes he wasn't. However, his like appreciation for his mother's attention was pretty consistent. The Britannica entry about his life said that he developed this early tendency to test his mother's indulgence through mischief, sometimes like very minor mischief and sometimes kind of a dick as a a little punk as an eight, 19 year old. When his mother was in her 80s, Samuel asked her about his poor health in his early years. And he said, I suppose that during that whole time, you were uneasy about me. And she said, yes, the whole time. He said, afraid I wouldn't live? And she said, no, afraid you would. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I feel like that's too good of a setup. But maybe his mom's that funny. Who knows? Okay. (laughs) So there's a ton of accounts that said his dad was real buttoned up, very strict, like not a very humorless man. But apparently his mother was very funny and quick-witted. Okay. That's where he gets it from. Yeah. And honestly, if you have seven kids in the 1800s, you got to roll with some punches. I mean, yes. <laughs> like, humor is your best bet. Not going to make it otherwise. Mm-mm. When he was four, his family moves from Florida, Missouri, to Hannibal, Missouri, which is where the like Mark Twain Museum is currently. I have actually been to this museum. Have you? Now, why would you have been there? No, I've never been You weren't been raised in the middle of the Midwest. No. Wait, Hannibal, Missouri? Mm-hmm. Is this also where uh, Hannibal Lecter is from? No. No, but it's close to St. Louis. Okay. If I recall correctly, it's a bit south of St. Louis, but I, I'm not entirely sure. It's close to St. Louis. His family moves to Hannibal. That's where most people know he's from. It's the 1840s. Missouri is a slave state. And... It is um, not a calm slave state. There is a ton of violence in Missouri in the the late 1800s. He is witness to a ton of this violence and death starting when he's very young. And a number of his later characters would be based on people from Hannibal. 
What kind of violence and death are we are we talking about? I'm about to tell you. Okay. So within one year, let me just give you an example of one year of his youth. 1844, he's nine. He walks into his dad's office. His dad's a lawyer. In his dad's office, a man stabbed to death. He'd been dragged there as part of this, like, inquest into this man's death, and they just left him in the lawyer's office. Wait, the lawyer's office? Mm-hmm. I feel like if you're going to see a lawyer and your ultimate goal is to be like, I didn't kill this guy, it doesn't help your case to bring him with you. I know. I don't know. I don't know. He was there. There's he, So in he's nine. He sees a man stabbed to death. Well, a, a man who has been stabbed to death. Okay. Okay. Later that year, he actually sees a man shot dead in the street. He and his friends later find the dead body of a formerly enslaved fugitive in the creek behind his house. Then he watches as one of his friends drowns. And so that's one year. Yeah, he says one year. Mm-hmm. It's a whole lot of death for a not very healthy child to see. Man, mean streets of uh, Hannibal, Missouri. Did not expect that. Well, it's a port city, so maybe folks are just like hopping off the riverboat, not uh, the soberest of people, getting into some tussles. I mean, it could be. But like you grew up in a port city and it's all debauchery. Sure, sure. Chicago's a port city. Venice is a port city. Like, I don't know. I feel like it didn't get you off the hook, but sure. Yeah, but we're talking along the Mississippi River. Come on. Riverboat gamblers. I'm just saying, I feel like there's a spirit of the Mississippi River that is like debaucherous. That's a that's a long river for a lot of debauchery. Absolutely. That's how he gets away with it. <laughs> okay. Spreads out the debauchery. Okay, fair if enough. If you have concentrated debauchery, people would damn that up. But if you, if you, you just... You've got to let it flow, baby. String it, string it on through. <laughs> anyway, so he sees that. He turns 10 and sort of rounds the corner of health in his life. And wouldn't you know it, just when he gets this sort of clean bill of health and he stops seeing people gunned down in the street, his father gets pneumonia and dies in front of him. That's not great. Although, not great. If you died in pneumonia, it, was, it wasn't it was like he died all of a sudden in front of him. You watch him die slowly in front of him. Yeah. Is that better? You know, now that I say it out loud, probably not. <laughs> but okay. Within a few years, you know, he leaves school and he gets a job as a typesetter at a local newspaper. He does this for a few years while he's wrapping up school in Missouri. And at 18, he leaves. He's got to go explore the world. And he goes to work in a number of printing studios in New York City, in Philadelphia, and, and even Cincinnati. He becomes one of the founding members of one of the first uh, media unions or journalist unions and sort of like works around these various offices. But what he really wants to do, what everyone from port towns along the Mississippi want to do, is become a steamboat man. Ideally, a pilot. A steamboat pilot? Mm-hmm. What, is, what does a steamboat pilot signify these days? Well, a steamboat pilot back then and still currently are people who drive the, like, or pilot the large barges, the steamboats, and a variety of other ships up and down the Mississippi from port city to port city delivering and picking up goods. And it's like a very difficult job. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So when you say still, they they aren't still doing steamboats no. up and down the Mississippi. But yes, there are still people who like drive the sh- the riverboats up and down the the Mississippi River, barges yeah. and other boats and things. The technology at the time was steam. 
That's okay. what they had. Yes, yes. So he goes back to Missouri, and he meets a steamboat pilot named Horace E. Bixby. It's quite a name. Exactly what you'd expect a steamboat pilot's name to be. Horace yes. Bixby. Yes. Bixby says, okay, sure, Sam, come on board. You can be a student, and I will teach you how to navigate the river between St. Louis and New Orleans. That's, that's what I know. I'll teach you that. I'm not going to pay you. You're just going to be an apprentice. Samuel Clemens was like, yes, in it, love it. And just what we're saying here is that, like, if you're an ocean captain on a boat, Mm -hmm. you're sailing in the ocean, the main job is to head in the right direction. Because if you're a little off, you end up someplace very different than when you were expecting. (laughs) Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. A little bit too far south, a little more angled than you thought, you hit the wrong continent. Mm -hmm. On a river, though, it is not like open seas. On the river, it is like it's curvy, it's bendy. There's parts that are shallow. It's like you're gonna, you're gonna hit something if you don't know this river really well. Right. This is actually where his pen name comes from. Do you know this story? Yes, I do. What I know is that as you go through the water, mm-hmm. they're they are having to constantly check and make sure that like you are in the right place and that it's deep enough. Mm-hmm. And so there are big sticks that they would actually push down off the edge of the boat from the front mm-hmm. to measure how deep the water is at any given point to make sure they can make it through. And they would the person at the front who was measuring would call out how deep the water was or where the mark water mark was on the thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the marks that was on that stick was Twain or mm-hmm. like. It, maybe it means in between. So Mark Twain was when somebody would yell out to say how deep the water was. Was it deep enough to go through? Yeah. So technically it's two fathoms is one Twain. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> which is 12 feet, which is what is required for the steamboat to pass through. So this like leadsman, I think that's what they're called at the front of the boat, mm-hmm. would yell Mark Twain. They would put it down. If it was 12 feet, then they could, they could go, on uh, through. go on through. And if it wasn't... They had to stop the boat. Yeah, I mean, quickly. Go backwards. Much, much sooner than when they were actually there. Seems like there should have been like a boat that went out ahead of them. Yeah, like to a be more honest. shallow boat. Yeah, but I don't know. I, who am I to say? Takes him two years, gets his riverboat pilot's license. At this point, he's like 23, which is very young for someone with so much responsibility. Sure. Like if I got on an airplane tomorrow and the pilot was 23, I would be like, ugh. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're not trying to, like, keep the confidence of any passengers, <laughs> fighter pilots are young, too. It's like, if you, if you just take somebody, you're like, okay, this is the thing you do, and that's what they train in. Sure, why not? Got enough hub- hubris to, to pull it off. Who knows? Yeah, fighter pilots, though, that's their business. I'm minding <laughs> my business. If I get on a plane, I'm minding my business also, and my business is making sure that I feel confident. This is ageist. I know. You don't like, ever get to see the They let me take pilots. care of 30 students when I was 21. What am I even talking about here? I mean, sure. Yes. It's w- fair. Woof. Young people should not have jobs is what we're saying. <laughs> no one should have jobs. Start the revolution. He's 23. He's got his own boat. He convinces his only younger brother to come work for him. He tells his brother, you can be a mud clerk. A Wait, what? Yeah. A term I'd never heard. Get this. He's like, hey, buddy. You can be a mud clerk, and your duties will include running errands for the officers of the steamboat, carrying messages around the ship, fetching food and beverages, and as the name implies, the mud clerk was also given just the dirtiest jobs aboard the ship, and they don't get paid. Oh, this is an unpaid internship. (laughs) Yeah. Eventually, you can work your way up to, like, third clerk, second clerk, first clerk. You're still clerking around this boat. Okay. (laughs) 
but the mud clerk is the lowest clerk. It's worse than the third clerk. It is. Yikes. It's like a janitor intern. Convinces his brother Henry to come do this for him. And wouldn't you know it, within just a few months, the boilers exploded on Henry and he died. Yikes. Yeah. So I don't know anything about steamboats, but I know a couple things about boilers exploding. Okay. Right? When I was 14, 13, the boiler in our house exploded on my dad when he went to light it for the uh, for the winter. Yeah, that's rough. What I can tell you is living through it is not likely for most people. It is not great. And um, Samuel felt pretty bad about this for the rest of his life. Wait, so, okay, so a boiler is like a big metal tank that they're boiling water in, I assume. Yeah, so when you have steam heat throughout, or in this case, my guess would be like steam power, you have, they used to be enormous, like closet-sized boxes where steam would be produced and then pushed through pipes either to create power or to heat things. And you have to light it with a fire. A lot of them are natural gas. My guess, yes, yeah, back but then. It, it's a closed system that you're pushing the steam through. So basically, if you have a big metal tube with like a bunch of pressure, it turns into a bomb it when, does. when it breaks. It does, yeah. If a pipe gets rusted open, for example, or any number of mishaps happen, it is a bomb. Yeah, and, and they blow up. And this kills his brother. Kills his brother. More tragedy. He's only 23. He continues to be a pilot until he really sees his opportunity to leave. And that opportunity is the Civil War. Civil War breaks out. He regrettably and very briefly joins a Confederate volunteer troop. Wait, what? Yeah. He, he fights for the Confederacy? He does not. He is only in it for two weeks before, one, realizing what a shit thing it is to be a Confederate and that he actually was against slavery but he was from Hannibal, Missouri and just joined, like, the local troop. Okay, okay. okay so there's one. He was like, no, I actually don't like this. I got to say, I guess you, you never want to discourage anybody who has a moment of self-reflection. Right. And, like, changes their course. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you do have to acknowledge that, like, being like, oops, I joined, I joined the wrong side of this war <laughs> is, like, n- not a small mistake to make. It's not. No. And... The other reasons he leaves is because he realizes, in general, he doesn't want to fight in a war. And Ulysses S. Grant and his troops are about two weeks away. And the irony of this is later he would go on to write Ulysses S. Grant's uh, autobiography, or no, biography. Biography, make a, yeah. Make a shit ton of money, and they were, like, close friends. But he realizes he does not want to go to war. And what he wanted to do, actually was go to the American West and strike it rich instead. Wait, he was doing the riverboat captaining. Mm-hmm. The war happens. Mm-hmm. He joins it for two weeks as a competitor. It's like, oh, I don't want to do this. Yeah. They're going to actually make me fight. Plus, hopefully also he's thinking like this is the wrong side. And then he's just going to go ride this thing out as a cowboy? Uh, No, he's going to go ride it out in Nevada as a silver miner. As a miner? Yeah. So he heads to Nevada. He's convinced he's going to strike it rich. Spoiler, this is the first of many times in his life where he, too, has been bamboozled and swindled. (laughs) Does not work out for him? Horrible. He essentially goes there, tries it, and within weeks, months, is bankrupt. He's like, I can't feed myself. I'm bad at this job. Wait, what are you spending your money on? Food? Getting there? I mean, I guess that's true. 
I just imagine, like, if you're digging your own mines, it's a relatively low overhead operation. It, it, he's, like, panning for silver. It's like it's like right after the gold rush, except in Nevada, it's silver. That's your problem. You're... And he hears he's going to, it's get rich quick, it's not, and he's bad at it. Got it. Okay. So he goes back to what he knows. And there's not a lot of steamboats in Nevada, surprisingly. <laughs> he does get the chance to become a writer, though. So he gets a job at a local newspaper. And this is where he would use that pen name Mark Twain for the first time. He would actually first use a series of other pen names, including W. Epimenonis Adrastus Blab. Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's nonsense. Yeah. Let me spell this last name for you. Okay. W. E. P. A. M. I. N. O. N. D. A. S. You lost me. Epimenondus Adrastus Blab. And also Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass. <laughs> okay. So not good names. No. Mm-mm. I can see why they did not catch on. Mark Twain sticks, though. He's writing there for a few years, and then he starts running his mouth. Is he writing while he's out in Nevada still? Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's, like, doing a little local newspaper. Okay. To just try to not, not be living outside. Starts talking shit about a rival newspaper. Okay. The editor of that newspaper is like, listen, we settle things here by shooting each other. I would like to challenge you to a duel. Clemens is like, well, I guess that is how we're going to handle these newspaper beefs in the street. <laughs> Wait, the newspaper beefs are leading to duels? Mm-hmm. So he agrees. He's like, yes, I will. I will duel you. And then <laughs> under cover of darkness, this motherfucker skips town. <laughs> he later says it's because he did not want to get involved in the legal mess of Nevada anti-dueling laws. But uh, I, I really think... Mm, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was concerned about the laws. <laughs> yeah. No, okay, this is the same guy who's like, I uh, I left the Civil War because uh, I had my conscience told me I was on the wrong side. No, like, they were two weeks away from actually having to fight, and he's like, I'm out of here. And yes. then he goes and gets to the duel, he's like, oh, it's the dueling laws. No, bitch, if you're going <laughs> to duel somebody, you don't care if they... Of course they tell you you can't duel. Like, you don't agree to it unless you're like, oh, is it legal to kill people? No, but right. that's beside the point once you've accepted. Yeah, I don't buy it. Right. I, and if you're the loser, you don't even have to deal with the dueling laws. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Look, I'm not I'm not faulting him for self-preservation, but like that sounds like some bullshit reasons. Also, what could he have said to this other newspaper editor where he was like, it's time to shoot you? He's got this beef. He decides he's going to go further west. He's not a silver miner, but maybe if he goes to San Francisco, it's the end of the gold rush. Maybe there's something else there for him. He starts writing for a magazine, blah, blah, blah. He's there for a couple months. One of his friends gets into a bar brawl. Friend gets arrested. Clemens goes to bail him out of jail. Friend skips town. Uh-oh. Samuel doesn't actually have any bond money, so he also skips town. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're on the hook for the money. <laughs> so it's just like a series of all of these, like, really unfortunate things following him around. In modern language, it I think we would say he he does not have his shit together. No, no, he does not. But his luck's about to change. Again, under cover of darkness, heads to a nearby town. While there, he's in a bar. He hears some guys talking about a frog jumping contest. Not sure whatever happened to the bail bond thing, but he ends up back in San Francisco. I guess there's a statute of limitations or he just gives no shits at this point. Yeah. What are they going to do? Arrest him? Yeah. He's got this frog story in his pocket. He's like, oh, that's really interesting. I heard that. His friend writes to him and is like, hey, um, I'm writing a book of short stories. Would you like to contribute a short story? Samuel Clemens agrees. And at this point, Mark Twain fucks around 
and finds out that if you spend too much time writing a short story, the editor of the book will leave you out and print the book without your story. He's writing this story about the frog jumping competition Mm -hmm. and just takes too long? Yes. But the publisher actually liked the story, and he liked it so much that he sent a copy of it to the Saturday Press, which was a popular newspaper at the time. Readers loved it, and that was Mark Twain's first foray into success as a fiction author. And this story, I don't know if you had to read this. I remember vividly reading this in like intro to creative writing my freshman year of college. It's The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. I've heard it before, but I don't think I've ever read it. Okay. Well, it's a short story. You could probably read it in a few minutes. I don't actually remember the plot. I I honestly just remember talking about how he overheard it in a bar and then we read it in class. At the same time that he's writing these short stories, he's also still working as a journalist. That's what pays his bills. He gets this gig where this paper is going to pay him a fair amount of money to travel across Europe and send back 50 letters detailing these adventures. Just like a travel writer. A travel writer back in the day. That's a great gig. He ends up meeting a woman on these travels named Olivia Langdon, and he courts her hard. But is that a euphemism? No, no. I mean, he's he uh, is challenged in his courtship because her father is wealthy and hates this dude. Okay, he's yeah. like, look at this little punk writer coming in, making jokes, thinks he can take my nineteen-year-old daughter away from me. Tale as old as time. Eventually, though, he does win her over, and in eighteen seventy, when he's twenty-five, he finally marries Olivia. It took literally like five or six years. She's 10 years his junior, so she's 25. They get married. Fun fact, Samuel Clemens actually has no direct descendants anymore. Wait, what? (laughs) He and Olivia first have a son who ends up dying very young, also very sickly. And although eventually they have three daughters, the most famous of whom is this woman named Clara. You might have heard of her. She put together... All of a lot of Mark Twain's writing, Samuel Clemens' writings, and she's the one who who got all of his posthumous stuff published. So he has Clara, a son who died in infancy, and then two daughters who died before him. One from meningitis when she was 24, and another one who drowned in the bathtub after having a seizure. Yikes. I know. So he has just a ton of personal tragedy throughout his life. But... This is a time in his life when he is really writing his most famous pieces of literature. We're not going to talk about him. Everybody knows him. Snooze. But 1870s, 1880s, he's writing. He's wildly successful. And in tandem with his wife's generational wealth, the Clemens family becomes extravagantly rich. Like very, very rich. What is, is it just the success of his writing? Yeah, he is the most popular writer And although he's a great writer, he is also a notoriously bad businessman. As in, sank $200,000 of 1890s money. Like that rich. 1890s, $200,000. Sunk that much money into a number of failed businesses and startup ideas. Okay, okay. I'm I'm willing to hear him, though. (laughs) Okay. So he's one of the most successful people, and he ends up having to declare bankruptcy. And not like, oh, I'm going to avoid paying taxes bankruptcy, as in like, the only asset to our name is this house my wife's 
father bought us, so I'll transfer it to her name, but we have no other money to pay the bills bankruptcy. Wait, loses everything. Basically all of it. Yikes. Fortunately, he still owned the rights to, obviously, many of his books, and he was well enough connected to get some business advice. And by the time he turns 60, things start turning around. So there's a little Colonel Sanders crossover moment here. Okay, okay. 60, getting their life together, finally. That's how long it takes for people like this. Yeah, so he goes on tour. He's a celebrity. He goes on tour, reads books, a little performance, some humor, travels 71 cities, makes a ton of money. Over $2.5 million in today's money just on that tour alone, which was enough to pay off his debts and start to accumulate wealth again. And he does this just in time to make another shitty investment. This time, he pours tens of thousands of dollars of 1890s money into backing a protein powder called plasmin, which he claimed delivered 16 times the nutritional value of steak at a cost of a penny a day. And he told people it could, quote, end the famine in India. This is like real Soylent precursors here. It's real Soylent precursors, but it does not end any famines. Okay, okay. And everything else he claimed was also a lie. Got it. 16 times more nutritious than steak. That doesn't, can you imagine 16 times the amount of protein a steak <laughs> in you, a powder? You don't need it. You don't need that. There's very few Americans who are protein deficient. They need some fiber. Most people need some fiber. So listen, if he was selling that, might might be good for the world. Clemens actually ends up suing the guy who invented plasmin. And he's like, I want my $30,000 back. Yikes. Gets in front of the judge. And the judge is like... Um, okay, so this man fooled you, he hustled you, scammed you. Is this the first time you've been swindled into some bad investments? I don't see how that's relevant. <laughs> yeah. And Mark Twain was like, no, sir, I'm very bad at investing. <laughs> and the judge was like, you do not get your money back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so at least he's honest. Up to this point, Clemens seems like an okay dude, right? A lot of bad luck, some poor decisions, a lot lot of tragedy. A lot of people died, yes. Yeah, real roller coaster. And in a lot of ways, throughout his life, he had many views that a lot of people, like contemporary people, would consider ahead of his time and still looked favorably upon by today's standards. So, unlike a number of our heroes, the shitty views he held in his youth were generally rectified as he matured. He only fought for the Confederacy for a little while. For two weeks. Yeah. (laughs) And then he was like, hey, I was a shitty dude. I'm so sorry. Yes. Still a ton of debate about some of his like tenuous relationship to race in a lot of his writings. Some scholars are like, hey, this is a commentary on race at the time. And this is meant to subvert the narrative. Some people are like, no, a lot of his stuff is just a product of the time, which means he's racist as hell. But he does go on a campaign, like an abolitionist campaign anti-slavery, donates money to anti-slavery causes, is vocal about post-war treatment of Black Americans, African Americans, and so he evolves, is what I'm saying. A rare example of someone who changed his opinions and didn't just like quietly do it. He was vocal. He, you know, was pro-union. He was eventually anti-imperialist. At one point, he was pro-imperialism and then was like, that's a bad opinion to have. I'm going to write a number of essays to say this is why we maybe shouldn't be trying to take over other countries. 
Well, okay, so even so, both with internal domestic stuff at the, mm-hmm. in the United States, like slavery mm-hmm. and international things, labor rights, yep. uh, pro kind women's of, rights, pro women's rights. So kind of a fuck up as a kid, mm-hmm. uh, but like funny in a funny way, mostly got his shit <laughs> yeah. together, yeah, uh, and then really like did the work to like support causes. I mean, like frankly, that's yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Also, my personal favorite, he was a vocal anti, um, he was vocally against vivisection, which is, in case people don't know, experimenting on animals. Mm. He was like, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. It's not worth the cost. Causes a lot of suffering in the world. Ahead of his time. Grew up, small town Missouri, married a rich liberal woman from the East Coast, evolved, was vocal about that evolution. So you might be wondering, when do we get to the real life bad behavior part of this story? Sure. Yeah. The answer is right now. Okay. 1905. Clemens is 70. His wife has just died. Two of his daughters, including his favorite one, Susie, are dead. And this is when he decides to turn on the creep machine. (laughs) Like, real hard. Yikes. So starting in 1905, Clemens began, quote unquote, collecting young girls that he called angelfish. Wait, pause. You said "quote unquote" collecting as if mm-hmm. somebody mm-hmm. like that's a quote from somebody calling it collecting. Who called it collecting young girls? That was my first reaction. Like, collect is such a strange term. Let me give you a little context. He said he did this, like this collecting of young girls, because he had a longing for grandchildren. One, he had grandchildren. <laughs> so, <laughs> two. Wait, but he's the one who's calling it collecting. Yes, and two, he also didn't collect young boys. So it's very specific. And when doing this research, like the word collecting kept coming up. In my mind, the word that makes more sense is grooming. But here's what Twain himself wrote in 1873. As for me, I collect pets, young girls, girls from 10 to 16 years old, girls who are pretty and sweet and naive and innocent. Dear young creatures to whom life is a perfect joy and to whom it has brought no wounds, no bitterness, and few tears. Wait, 10 to 16? Mm-hmm. Like, prepubescent mm-hmm. to just barely pubescent girls, not boys, mm-hmm. sweet, innocent creatures. Yeah. And I'm just going to collect them. Let me tell you about the collection process. Oh, God. I'm going to say trigger warning, content warning. There's no evidence of sexual assault or sexual violence, but it is very creepy. So I'm, if people are... If this is triggering to people, it's going to be about five minutes of talking about this, but it's gross. It all started in 1905 when a 15-year-old girl named Gertrude recognized him after a show and went up and introduced herself. The next day she wrote to him, describing herself as, quote, his obedient child. And she ended her note by saying, quote, I am the little girl who loves you. He immediately Immediately, that same day, writes back, and this begins a series of flirtatious letters in which he calls her his little witch. She calls him darling. At one point, he confessed to having adored a young girl a few decades before named Marjorie. And Gertrude responded, quote, may I be your little Marjorie? And then shit went off the rails. What? Wait, it was on the rails till this point? Yeah, I don't know. How old is this fan? So she's 15. 15. Okay, good. Eventually, these messages get very flirty, and they include notes about wanting to kiss each other, which, uh, for some reason, this is so weird to me. They call them blots. Like, I want to give you a blot. 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But as soon as she turns 16, Twain kicks her to the curb. He said it was because he didn't want there to be any perceived impropriety now that she was of age. And he said he wished that she could go back to being 14. Whoa, wait. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. He's worried about it looking like there's impropriety mm-hmm. when he's saying all these things to a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. But he's not worried about saying all of those same things to a 15-year-old? No, not at all. That's weird. Yeah. Suspicious. Author Linda Simon wrote about what happens next and what she calls like his adventures luring girls to him. And she wrote in this article for the Paris Review, and she said, quote, Buoyed by Gertrude's effusive declarations of love, Twain discovered that it was easy to find other young admirers, primarily from his fellow passengers on holiday trips to Bermuda. By 1908, he had collected 10 schoolgirls, dubbed them his angelfish, and awarded them membership in his aquarium club. In Bermuda, he had special shimmering enamel lapel pins designed for them to wear on their left breast above their heart. In the spring and summer of 1908, one biographer notes, Twain's letters to his angelfish comprised more than half of his correspondence, one letter sent or received every day. Many contained invitations to the girls to visit him in his palatial house in Connecticut, which he named Innocence at Home. He said, quote, I have built this house largely, indeed almost chiefly, for the comfort and accommodation of the aquarium. Wait, uh, the aquarium meaning the little girl fish thing? Mm-hmm. Oh. And then he announced in a document that he sent to all of his angelfish the rules and regulations of the club. And he told them that the lair of the angelfish was his billiard room. This author continued, quote, A friend later told him that the 12-year-old girl had asked if he was married, and when learning that he was not, that his wife had died, this girl said, If I were his wife, I would never leave his side for a moment. I would stay by him and watch him and take care of him all the time. Twain attributed the remark to the girl's, quote, mother instinct and willingly submitted, characterizing himself as a, quote, degraded and willing slave. Oh, God. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Oh, we just, you just skimmed over there for the last minute, uh, the part where he took the group of them to Bermuda, like to an island. Mm-hmm. And, and went, so went on trips with them to this island, flew them back, had this house that, like, he built to be able to collect these girls in. Mm-hmm. And then, and then... Once they, like, are there, yes, there's, like, this weird mommy-slave thing. Where are these girls' parents? So their parents actually approved of this. A number of them sent chaperones, Ugh. right? There's, like, lots of justification for these interactions over the years. They, a lot of them were, like, drawn into his celebrity, right? So if you think about, like, for example, and... There's no evidence that this is similar, but in mm-hmm. this is what it triggers in my mind. Yeah. Courtney Stodden and that guy Doug that they married oh, yeah, when yeah, they were yeah. 15. And then the mom later admitted that they were in love with Courtney's husband, Doug. And that was like their whole thing. Do you remember this? Oh, the mom was actually in love with Doug? Yes. And so the uh, mom allowed Courtney to marry Doug because of his celebrity. Like by proxy. Yeah, I mean, like there's, uh, that is not the example that jumped to mind for me. Okay. The example that jumped to mind for me is the parents who brought their kids to Neverland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, 
so we, we will sidestep the whole Michael Jackson thing because like that's probably an episode in and of itself. Right, but, and it's not a one-to-one. No, it's not a one-to-one. But just the fact that like there were parents who were like, oh, there's a celebrity who's like really interested in hanging out with my kids. Okay. And then like and then like volunteer their children for this. Yes. So lots of people look back on this and they're like, why would why would Samuel Clemens have done this? Like he would didn't show any proclivity toward this when he was younger in any meaningful way. You know, he had a wife and kids and like why is he this super creep old man? And a lot of scholars say that it was because he actually loved his own adolescence. He was trying to like relive it through these girls. But also, no boys. Yeah. Right? And it's not like the grandkids, because he has grandkids, too. Right. Some people say that he's trying to, like, recreate this relationship with his favorite daughter, Susie, who had died so young. And, again, to be fair, there's little evidence of any physical impropriety. But there doesn't have to be for it to still be predatory. Yeah. It just, like, does not sit right with me. He formed a club. He had matching clothing for them made. And accessories. He wrote this, like, constitution or a set of rules, right? He had one of the homes in his house, a billiard room, redesigned to be the headquarters. He, like, turned it into a Playboy mansion for, like, 11-year-olds. Yeah, okay, yeah. And then he wrote shit like this to them. So it gets even worse. After a visit from an 11-year-old named Dorothy Quick, he wrote to her, quote, I went to bed as soon as you departed, there being nothing left to live for after that and all the sunshine gone. How do you suppose I'm going to get along without you? Ah, God, just like an adult male being like, oh, I'm living for you, 11-year-old. Yeah. Alas, this super creepy club was short-lived. And the reason it's short-lived is because the girls in the aquarium grew up over the course of five years. He complained that they were growing up too fast and he was tired of hearing about their boyfriends. Well, yeah, that will do it. Mm-hmm, Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like cutting off an old man by getting with someone who is age-appropriate and not dangerous. The ending of the club is just as well, because on April 10th, 1910, right after the club disbands, he suffers a heart attack and dies. On the same day that Halley's Comet reached its closest proximity to Earth, which was a prophecy that Clemens himself predicted. He said he was coming in, with Halley's Comet and going out the same way. And he did. Or Halley's Comet. <laughs> Still, for the endless mischief and sometimes downright scoundrelness of Samuel Clemens in his youth, for the multiple times he bankrupted his family, invested in snake oil products, accidentally killed at least one of his siblings, and especially for the grooming of underage girls, Mark Twain is not my hero. Okay, let's talk about aliens for a second. <laughs> okay. Uh, because I got to say, uh, we've we've alluded to this before, but one, uh, the aliens are real. They're oh, here. Yes. Let's just, 100%. Be, let's just be very clear. I, I'm convinced one of our and, animals, at least at least one of our animals, okay, is an alien. Okay, you're going off the rails here. Because okay, what I was okay, going to okay, say okay. Aliens, is, yes. for our European listeners, especially our French listeners, of which there are many, uh, the French government has been out like publicly about like all of the things that the U.S. government is just like now releasing in the Pentagon reports. The French government years and years ago, like 15, 20 years ago, has had similar government reports. It's like, hey, there's all these things that our pilots are seeing and that like are not of human origin, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. 
All this to say, whether it's been the French government, the Russian government, uh, all of the other credible first-person sources, I think hearing that Mark Twain was born and then died at the two times this comet was closest to Earth feels like very solid evidence that that was he was just going back to the mothership. Like yeah. that, that to me feels like a reasonable extrapolation. Right. Much much more so than horoscopes. I he, I feel like I want to believe that he was just returning. What if horoscopes come from aliens? What if that has been gifted to us from aliens and now you're just going to shit on their horoscopes? <laughs> you know. I uh I I do have to say it's a, it's a it would be a surprise to me. What how would it be a surprise? It's literally I will tell like, you why it's a surprise. Stories about the, because the stars and if, the skies. If there are messages coming to be like, okay, okay, let's look at today's paper. It's a litmus uh, test. They got to the, ease us the in. Per, the people being born are going to be like mm-hmm. funny, witty scoundrels. Okay. Yes. Yes. The fact that they are posting their alien messages on like astrology horoscope for you today dot co dot uk slash free demo to those sites that's exactly <laughs> where they're posting their messages also to be fair it feels like a lot of horoscopes to me and i love horoscopes totally believe them the same way i believe in aliens can't explain it not even going to try what I love is it's very similar to those memes that are like, I fed 100 hours of Olive Garden commercials into AI, and this is what it spit out. It's like when aliens were just trying to learn the English language. Mm, they were okay. like, we're going to put a string of adjectives and like superlatives together and see who buys it. Okay, okay. So I'm I'm going to just take a hard line here and say that astrology and aliens are two very different things. I feel like the aliens are like a legitimate part of the military industrial complex at this point, and I feel like horoscopes are still like P.T. Barnum, uh, which should be a whole other episode. But, will be. Will be, for sure. But in the meantime, just say, if, if there are aliens listening to this episode in particular, I'm sorry for associating you with this fucking creep who is grooming 11-year-olds, because that... That that could be seen as offensive potentially. Anyway, if the people are interested in more, you know, generic PT Barnum and alien uh, astrology crossover content, yes, uh, we've got it. Where can they find more? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep, and please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week, don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.